Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. If you haven't already, please go to combatlearning.com slash newsletter to get my intro to motor learning for martial arts, a PDF I wrote so you can get up to speed on the powerful concepts we're discussing in the show. Plus, you'll never miss an episode. Go to combatlearning.com slash newsletter. Today, I'm joined by Alan Dunton, a PhD in skill acquisition, human performance specialist, and a lecturer at TU Dublin. He also has a background in ITF Taekwondo. In this episode, we discuss a couple important studies done on self-organization and how to simulate a more realistic level of anxiety to competition. Then we discuss how the point system for sport Taekwondo can be manipulated to aid constraints-led training for specific tactics without over-constraining learners. Finally, We clear up how to understand the difference between predictive and prospective control of movement, which is one of the key divides between information processing and ecological dynamics theories of motor control and learning. So if you're excited to jump in, hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and enjoy the show. If you could give um, us a background of like what it is you do, your, your academic background, the research you've done. Um, and even a little bit of your background also in combat sports, that would be, that'd be awesome. Cool. Now with the shoot away. Yeah, go ahead. Great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I actually started my martial arts journey at about four years of age. I, uh, started doing Taekwondo, um, fell in love with it really. And that kind of took over as my primary sport while I was doing about four or five others. Um, and then when I kind of got to 15 or 16, I was after getting my black belt. I then started to um, represent Ireland on a kind of national and international basis, which was awesome. Got to travel to some great countries, uh, Canada, Argentina, Sweden. Uh, competed with Ireland until I was about 18 or 19 and then kind of ceased then. It wasn't really as a as good as I could have been to go in and, and compete at a senior level. But yeah, ever, ever, all the way through that journey, I kind of coached in my club and stuff like that. And that kind of gave me a real keen interest in sport as it was. So I did my undergrad in sport and exercise in CIT. Uh, and then from there, I went on to do a PhD in skill acquisition uh, in the Cork Institute of Technology, which is now the Monster Technological University under um, Edward Collin and Keen O'Neill um, and that kind of looked at visual attention and how we can guide it to look at improving particular skills so I kind of started uh, in basketball as my first study we looked at if I guide your visual attention upwards can you continue to dribble the ball but maintain your gaze outwards or your visual attention outwards um, so that was kind of the, the intro study that we kind of looked at and then that transitioned into um, into two football specific or soccer specific uh, studies. So if I wear these pair of goggles that remove the side of the ball as it's coming towards me, can I attend my visual attention and my general attention to what's out in front of me? So where the game is hypothetically happening. So the first study we did on that, we looked at a, a really simple uh, kind of number recall tasks. So a lot of numbers would appear in a, on a projector and you'd have to control and pass the ball either to your left or your right based on what was coming up on the screen. Um, and then we kind of brought that into a more field-based approach where we looked at 
again, if somebody passes me the ball and they run left or right, and then somebody passes me the ball and the teammate runs left or right and an opponent runs the opposite way, and then if I include somebody running towards me, can I pick up enough visual attention in the environment to control and pass the ball back to the most appropriate person while I'm under time pressure and while I have a multitude of things happening in the environment in front of me? So it's really about guiding visual attention out towards the environment more so I can make the most appropriate decision based on that change in visual information. So I'm no longer watching the ball come all the way to my foot. I'm starting to look at what's happening with teammates and opponents and then making a better decision based on that information. So that That's was awesome. kind of the, the track of my, my PhD yeah. and how I went from young taekwondo uh, student all the way through to there so yeah that's awesome um what what style just for i know that that uh, some of the guys listening are going to be are going to want to know like what what style of taekwondo you did itf yeah ITF. sorry okay yeah so that's I the one as, yeah, i started as gtf and then went to itf and oh, okay uh, it was um i have i'm pretty sure i have a friend in gtf like an internet friend that i've corresponded with for a long time is that is that more cookie one style like there is no discernible no like mainly discernible difference between gtf and itf and it okay Okay. um so it it they were very similar and you obviously have wtf which is uh the olympic based Mm -hmm. which is quite different to that that kind of itf and gtf stuff yeah that's what i do is the olympic but i started in a style um that was kind of descended from itf so that's kind of so when I first, when my first, you know, five years of Taekwondo, I was doing like the, the big broad stances and the different, um, that kind of stuff and the kicking with the, yeah. with the, like the round kick with the ball, the foot it kind of curled and yeah, that, course, that, yeah. that sort of style. Um, so it's cool. It's cool to have an eclectic background, but, um, yeah, that's cool. I, I know the, the, you know, martial arts are nerds, so they're going to want to know. Oh, Absolutely. I wonder, what, yeah. I wonder what style of Taekwondo he did. Um, so that, that's really cool. Um, I guess the, uh, the question I have off the top of my head, because you, you did research on actually not following the ball all the way to your foot so that you can keep your attention on what's going on in the environment. Um, would you, would you say that has, that, that has some application to combat sports? Cause I know for me, especially with new students, cause I used to be an instructor, um, like when they're sparring, I, I find, I find some of the, some of the fighters will like, follow the foot all the way until it hits them and so their attention is is totally stuck on the the, the movement of the, the blocking and then like watching the foot as it hits and moves instead of being able to block and like maintain their attention on so do you have you have you found that as well in your own practice or yeah absolutely i i had the the joy of being able to go back and coach um kind of kids when i was uh going through uh, my PhD and the the PhD tool I used would be kind of classified as a modified perceptual training tool. So it's just a pair of goggles that remove the sight of kind of everything in your lower grade visual field. So mm-hmm. in a combat sense, it, depending on how far away I am from the person across the way from me, I might not be able to see their feet or knees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually brought them in and used them in training with some of our younger kids because I think when you look at the traditional um, progressions for kids or beginners, you always kind of start with hand sparring, mm-hmm. and then you move and introduce the feet a little bit more. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what a, one of the funny things you always find is that kids will watch the hands and somebody will be punching. Yeah. And they'll be focusing that. And then if somebody starts kicking, they'll just stare at the feet. So as soon as they start staring at the feet, somebody's just going to pop them in the head with a yep. punch. Yeah. And then even, even beginners as well. So people who are a little bit more along the, the adult pathway will still really focus on not being hit by a kick. So they'll focus on really trying to watch the foot or watch the hand. Whereas a lot of the research or even, even though it's, it's kind of limited in, in combat sports and martial arts kind of shows that the expert or more elite athletes just focus on the trunk and, and, and head or that the torso and head region. Cause that's going to give you a whole lot of information based yeah. on what somebody's doing from an attacking perspective. So yeah. I definitely have used the visual attention kind of guiding concept of mm-hmm. where is important to look. So for like, I don't know, it depends if, if you're working with kids, I like to make it a much more enjoyable concept of maybe they'll be uh, superhero fans. So I say, okay, well, watch the Iron Man chest and they'll have this idea of an Iron Man chest in the middle. So it gives them something that they <laughs> yeah. really associate yeah. with. Yeah. And they love that kind of idea or else I'll tell people to, to draw a triangle between the belt and the, the center of the, the dough book or something along the lines of that. So mm-hmm. they're starting to get a bit more information in terms of, okay, well, I know if I'm watching this general region, not with like an intense focus, but a, a kind mm-hmm. of a, a softer focus, I'll see more subtle movements in the hip or I'll see more subtle movements in the the torso as it rotates either kick or punch. So that's kind of yeah. how I would introduce that into the the combat setting on a kind of a nice basic level. That's cool. I know that um, I, you might have seen this before, but a company called uh, Dado, and they're more big. They do stuff for sport karate too, but like they're more big for Olympic Taekwondo. They licensed with marvel um hogu like chess gear that is superhero based so there is an iron man okay. set that has about it right That's there awesome, yeah, yeah it's pretty cool and, and i know sometimes in itf that they'll, they'll use chess gear too occasionally so i mean you it could be something that you could use for the kids even in an itf yeah. style taekwondo get yeah just, i think it works really well it just gives them that sense of a, yeah. a little bit more of a connection to what they're doing it makes it a little bit more enjoyable so yeah, yeah it's super cool and you, it even has like matching like forearm guards and, and leg guards yeah, and that's stuff. Awesome. So it's, it's pretty fun i wish they had that stuff around i would have got the spider-man one i wouldn't got the, the the iron man um so most of my most of my li- listeners are going to are going to be familiar kind of with motor learning broadly speaking kind of like as acquiring and, and developing movements or ref- or refining movements um but but as we've just just kind of talked about you work you've worked pretty specifically within an area like within perceptions like um i i call it perceptual motor learning i don't know if that's the proper term for it so like what what is perceptual motor learning and how does it differ from like a very just I guess movement based approach to um motor learning that a lot of, of practitioners, especially in martial arts, have? Yeah. So uh, I mean it, there's one, there's a lot of terms that people throw at it, like you have perceptual cognitive skills, you have perceptual mm-hmm. motor skills. Um you can keep it really simple and go with just perceptual skills. Mm-hmm. And if I kind of run through what I would kind of look at as perceptual skills, you've got things like gaze behavior that looks at things like where you fixate your visual attention and how long you fixate your visual attention for, um, be that in an attacking or a defensive perspective. 
like uh, anticipation from a interception or in combat sports an evasion perspective so can i anticipate uh, an attack or am i anticipating a sequence of movements you then have like your decision making which layers really well with anticipation mm-hmm. and then you have things like pattern recognition situational probability and um, that all kind of tie into that broader idea of what perceptual skills or what perceptual training may be if that makes sense yeah so i mean like there's there's been some really good frameworks put in place before there's a there's a framework done by Stephen hadlow uh who is in in australia and it's the modified perceptual training framework um mm. and i think it, it it works really well for anybody who's trying to get their head around the idea of what is perceptual training and how do i go about starting to train it you can look at at this framework and he he has kind of three continuums that he puts elements of perceptual training on he's got like the targeted perceptual function so are you looking at kind of the basic visual stimulus like a very low end stimulus or are you looking at a stimulus that's i can see it but i'm not necessarily per- but i'm trying to perceive what this actually means so there's a, a significant difference between somebody who can see hip rotation and understand that this is a potential turning kick coming to the body or to the head or are you looking at it on a lower order level of i'm just seeing a hip move but i don't know what that means yet so that's kind of one of the ways you can look at it mm-hmm. you can then look at like the stimulus being very generic or very sport specific so again you kind of look at combat perspective if i'm using very broad air shields that i don't move whatsoever that's quite a generic stimulus or if i'm looking at like say numbers or letters that's a generic stimulus versus somebody trying to attack with a combination of punches which is your more sport specific one and then you kind of can layer that to become more and more competition relevant with timing and with ring size and so on and so forth and then the last one is that kind of response correspondence so how are you getting somebody to actually respond in the perceptual training environment so in academia unfortunately a lot of times it's been very heavy on the perceive only concept where they'll just try and get people to say what they're seeing mm-hmm. which doesn't really satisfy what happens in sport because right. we it, 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 it's that concept of act to perceive and perceive to act in that yeah. sense where you yeah. ha- in, in combat which you're always moving the you're trying to gauge distance against your opponent you look at when you bring it into mixed martial arts you have a multitude of things that somebody can throw at you whereas you limit it back to some other martial arts like taekwondo you know somebody's not going to try and take you down so it changes the the stimulus of how you act one but then also what you're trying to perceive based on that interaction of two people and i think that's the, probably the most important element of perceptual training is understanding that it's an interaction and it's that perception action cycle is continuously evolving. Correct me if I'm wrong. So you said that the academic has a problem with um having you call out what it is you're perceiving. That would seem like it's that that type of study is already biased towards an information processing theory and it it, yeah, it, it is, kind it of rules out an ecological Yeah, I mean I mean study. it, it it can be ecological in a sense because mm-hmm. they'll get people to maybe step to the side and or else okay. just verbally respond but where it, it does lend itself a little bit more information processing um mm-hmm. whereas i am definitely kind of on the other side of that spectrum yeah uh, and i think the 
the key issue I have with that is a lot of the studies that have been done in this is that the the error of accuracy is quite large. So in like say volleyball or in um, tennis or in um, any of those skills, people will indicate on say a visual of the pitch or the court where they felt like a serve would have gone. Mm. And there's still massive error even for experts. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a real life setting, that error is marked down as an error. Whereas in the studies that have been done, those verbal reports don't really give you an indication of how elite a person really is or how they actually respond. Okay. I gotcha. So that's where that big disassociation comes for me. And uh-huh. like it's one of those things that it's definitely getting a lot better, but it's one of those things that's really important to try yeah. and address not only from an academic perspective, but keeping that in mind when you're doing the practical element of combat sports. If I am focusing on sparring drills and I only have one person who's really ever moving and the other person is just kind of there to hold the pad, it creates a similar disconnect for me um, because you're not actually having somebody respond to what they need to. There's a, there's a great video of a, a guy doing takedowns with dummies mm-hmm. and there's three dummies lined up and he does his first takedown and then he does the second takedown but the last dummy is a person in a dummy costume yeah <laughs> and that <laughs> person that. Around and just flips him on his back yep. and that highlights the the kind of importance of yep. that connection for me yeah yeah uh, yeah and you just mentioned with the so i got myself in a lot of trouble for this i say a lot it wasn't that bad but um there's, there's kind of tiers of awareness within martial arts right now. You have people that are totally traditional that have absolutely no awareness of motor learning or motor control or how to do anything better. Um, they just do what they were taught to do, and that's what they think works, right? And a lot of them really have no interest in moving beyond that. Then you have a second tier. You have your firebrand, rebellious people who want to get rid of certain training methods. And they have, they have kind of these reasons for it. But, but, but at the end of the day, yes, their training looks a little bit different, but it's still broadly traditional and they don't understand why, for example, more sparring is better or, you know, why you pad work is super, is good for them, but, um, they don't want to do like a one step sparring or something like that. Right. And that's, and then they're kind of stuck in that box where they're kind of above, they're a little bit above the traditional level, but they won't, they're not looking at the theoretical, the things that underlie why something like sparring or, or um, something different than one-step sparring actually would be better than doing one-step sparring, right? And then you have a tier above that, which is people that are actually reading the research. They're looking at wh- why it's important to spar, like trying to attune to information, for example. And then when you're, at, when you're looking at that and you think, oh, okay, the fidelity of the stimulus that's offered to you is actually important so for example and this is where i got myself in in some arguments um (laughs) on the internet is um when you're looking at for example mitt work for for boxing you know normally a cross or or a straight right is offered um as a sort of counter to a jab but the way the mitts are set up the yeah even if they're inside the wrong shoulder moves the wrong, you know, you get the wrong, you know, if, if you're attuned to this information here for boxing, 
the wrong shoulders moving to, to signal that, right? Absolutely. So yeah. you're practicing attuning to the wrong information. Um, first of all, you're already, you're more focused on the mitts anyways. Yeah. So you're, you know, even if you're, you, there's the, there's a, the aspect of maybe you're not even focused on the right area. So you're yeah. focused on the wrong area with, with the exercise or you're focused on what the guy's saying, which has nothing to do with boxing. And then if you're not focused on that, then you're getting the wrong perceptual information from where you should be focused on like the, the shoulder area. And, yeah. and I know, and, and I realized that it's the same thing for paddle work in Taekwondo. You don't want to kick after the hands or the arm. You're not supposed to be watching the opening and closing angle of, of the paddle. Um, mm -hmm. It also gives you a strange, more so even than pad work, the, the range is off yeah. because now you're actually not, you're, you're farther away because you're kicking the length at, at the length of the arm instead of towards the trunk. So there's, there's all this misalignment of information that's happening with these drills. And I think, I think you just touched on that. I mean, what, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's. Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a lot of gold in, in, in what you've just kind of talked through um, and some really key importance, uh, important points that, that really need to be addressed. And I'll come back to a, a study in a minute by Maloney um, and colleagues. And it, it's, it's one of the better studies I've seen done that kind of talks about what mm. happens in competition and what happens in training. But before I kind of go to that point, I think you mentioned it earlier that people don't understand why they make a change, but they don't understand why. And for me, why you do something is far more important than what it actually is. So if you, it's the it's what you're trying to uh, get students to, to to almost do. So are you working on the decision making? Are you working on them trying to tune to something? So why you do something is far more important than what you do for me a lot of the time. Yeah. Um. But to address the paddle work kind of aspects, you are right. A lot of the pad work stuff is creating a a, a kind of perception of the wrong cues that you one would mm -hmm. somebody actually look for um the the other side of that is a lot of times we see this in elite sport like there's there's videos of floyd mayweather doing some of the most outrageous pad work and <laughs> yeah. and it's super fast and it's super impressive might have absolutely nothing to do with you as one of the best boxers that has ever lived may have mm -hmm. absolutely nothing to do with it yeah the problem is there's really culturally resilient beliefs within sports that people believe that this is why I have to do the network because the best yeah. person in the world potentially does it. And that one, that's the wrong reason to do something. So that comes back to mm -hmm. the why you do it. If you're doing it because you saw somebody else do it, it's a problem. The other thing I would say is I, I don't have a massive issue with paddle work if you do it in a particular way. So the... Yeah. From a, let me, I'll talk you through like how I would have used it before in a, in a taekwondo sense. Whereas I'll start and I'll have people have no pads on whatsoever and they'll just do touch sparring. It's still very much me understanding that there's an element of perception I can hear that's constantly ongoing. The reason I'm going to do touch sparring is because we can't always just go at full kilter and constantly be at that maximum 100% intensity, 10 out of 10 relevance, 10 out of 10 context because it's super hard to train at that intensity the whole time. So yeah. I have no problem with reining it down from that perspective. Yeah. 
then you can introduce paddles, but it, I think if you're going to introduce paddles, it very much has to be almost a simulation of sparring where you may be honing in on something in particular. If you want to work on turning kicks to the head or you want to lo- work on um, spinning back kicks, you can introduce paddles so that the person who's holding the paddle has something safe to be hit on that's not their body. But you want to try and keep it as close to the actual movements that somebody's going to be exposed to in a competition setting. And if you're going to do something along the lines of that, that for me is only a small portion of what you do, like a really small portion of what you do. And then it's integrated into actual combat or actual sparring. Yeah. So I think that's probably one of the biggest problems. It's not that I'm going to throw out everything that's ever been done before, but I'm just going to use it for something in particular and i'm going to use it in a small aspect and then i'm going to integrate it in to that broader broader more open perception action coupling cycle of sparring mm-hmm. where i've got a much more representative training session yeah if that makes sense so yeah. it's 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 it can be quite dangerous because people see it and they think oh this is all i'm going to do and i'm going to spend 90 percent of my time doing pad work rather than actually no i'm just going to spend five percent of my time doing pad work because yeah. it's it's a bit safer and we're going to protect our athletes a little bit and then i'm going to integrate what i'm doing there in line with everything else i've been doing yeah that makes sense and there's a lot of things you can do and i know boxing is a really hard problem with this but with taekwondo most of what you do is oriented towards the trunk so it's safe to practice um but there are, you, there are head kicks and, and it's difficult yeah. to 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 uh practice that sort of stuff in a representative environment and paddles um if, if you do it the way you're supposed to do it in the way they they train it for like high level olympic athletes now if you drop the paddle over this way and hold it next to your head and next to your axe kick it there that's is you know that's fairly that's a safe way to practice something in an almost representative sort of um of way um, but if you hold it out like this and a lot of people even a lot of people do that they hold it way out in front that's not you know that's yeah, less useful yeah yeah so I, I think this is this is one of the other kind of big elements of why the pad work might be okay if you're looking to improve something called action capabilities so mm-hmm. say i'm say i'm struggling with my axe kick or i'm struggling with a tourniquet and i as an athlete I'm trying to to work on it in a representative environment, but one that's not as challenging. So if I'm not, so if you have an athlete who's never going to throw an axe kick in the spare because anytime they try it, they get smashed. You're going to reduce the the tendency of them to explore an axe kick in that setting. So yeah. you can create that little bit more of a safer environment with the pad work that we're just kind of talking about. And then you can incentivize an axe kick in a much more representative environment where there mm-hmm. you're like, look, you know, you can do this as a technique. Now I want you to really try and use it in a spare. And I'm going to give you an additional two points every time you score with an axe kick. Ah. So you're now incentivizing that axe kick that little bit more. So yeah. there to push to actually be like, yeah. actually, you know what? I am going to try my axe kick now in this situation. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's not about removing everything else from it. It's about incentivizing something to be. It, it, it's kind of what I think Danny Duke and I'm going to rob incentivizing. He calls it yeah. He calls it turning up the volume on on a particular aspect. Yeah. So if I've got my range of kicks here and I want to focus, or I have an athlete who wants to focus on spinning kicks or wants to focus uh-huh. on a side kick, 
I'm just going to turn the volume up on that particular kick in that session. And I'm going to incentivize it by giving you additional points on that. Yeah. When you're in a sparring setting. Yeah. That's, I just made a connection there that I hadn't made before. So with in the, in the, and specifically in the Olympic sparring community, um, there's a lot of people that came out of like the nineties, 2000 before the electric Hogu, um, where Taekwondo looked, Olympic Taekwondo looked quite a bit different. It was a lot more dynamic. There was a lot more, um, uh, just, it looked different. It looked more powerful. Um, I, I doubt that it was actually more powerful, but that's another thing, but it looked more powerful and that's what people kind of want to get back to. And a lot of people don't like the aesthetic of way it, the way it looks now because of the way the, the electric Hogu and the change in the rules has changed the meta of the game. There's a sense in which um, the Olympic community understands how the rules change the way Taekwondo is done. So there's a sense in which they're already thinking on that level. But even me, who reads about the constraints-led approach and was even yesterday re reading about the modified um, perceptual training thing out of the, the second edition of Dynamics of Skill Acquisition, I didn't even think about that, about that, about the fact that people are already thinking on that level now. Why don't we just take the way they think about competition and move that down to the way they train. So, okay, cool. You, you guys want to do, you guys, you're, your guys aren't doing enough um, ax kicks. I won't say enough ax kicks, but you're not seeing ax kicks. This is a potentially useful um, and somewhat uncommon on a, on a local level of competition technique that, that your guys could be doing, but they're not doing it because the way you train doesn't, incentivize it to emerge at any point so adjust the points right mm -hmm. i didn't even think about that you could you could spar and adjust the point structure to incentivize what shows what shows up more without re without outright cutting out other options yeah i think that's a, a really important point because it, when i when i started to try and encourage uh and uh, kind of a broader range of techniques for fighters because the more the more techniques you can throw mm -hmm. from a, a kind of standard, the more you can hit your opponent with. And yeah. the more your opponent's going to find it very difficult to adapt to what they're seeing. So if I'm coming out and in, in ITF, and I, it, was the, it was very psychic heavy, very yeah. side on, very psychic heavy. Everybody's throwing yeah. psychics. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to identify, okay, well, how do we get Ireland to, to not, be just a psychic heavy athlete. So I started by just saying, okay, we're just going to do sparring now. You can only throw axe kicks and you can only throw turning kicks now. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really work. And I was like, mm, yep, maybe that's not the way to do it. So then yep. it was about just turning the volume up on those because one, the other person knows that all oh, you're going to throw is an axe kick. So they're going to try yeah. and just anticipate that and move because it's very difficult to catch somebody with an axe kick if they know you're going to throw an axe kick. So it's just about trying to to encourage it in a more incentivized way than remove all the other options. So I just want to turn the volume up here, here, here yeah. to see what I want to manipulate in the training session. That is that has exactly been my journey and my understanding of the constraints-led approach. You know, when I when I first came into contact with it, I understood I that it clicked and I was like, wow, this is this is I never thought about it this way before. And this could be really awesome. But my initial understanding of it was, okay, 
um, we're just going to do jabs today. That's what we're going to do. We're going to make it alive, but it's just jabs and you have to use your jab. And that was my understanding of constraints-led approach. But then as I read more into like ecological, the more broader ecological um, dynamics aspect of it and the idea of how control, you know, how, how control functions within that sort of um, environment or under that sort of understanding, um, I started to wonder like, well, hold on a second. If I want, a, if I want someone's own style of play to emerge, if I don't want to stifle um, any sort of, yeah. yeah, any sort of exploration, I can't just wholesale remove techniques and 100%. zero down into like one thing. Mm -hmm. um, so now I have to figure out how to focus on something without, you know, and then what you're talking about with dialing, like that's, for me, that's, that's a big deal because you already have within a point sparring context, a sort of meta representative element that you, if you play with the points now, um, you already have a toolbox to help, to help with that constraints led approach to, to approach, to understand how to approach design of, of your exercises. So that's, that's awesome. I appreciate, I appreciate that, that you really just helped me there with a, connecting so, a, lot yeah. of, a lot of different dots. <laughs> that, I've been, yeah, yeah, yeah. that I've been thinking about yeah. now there's now there's a line between them all yeah. awesome but there's a there's a lot you can manipulate though i mean i i've i've, the, I've like i will not I, I won't wholesale apply constraint to mm -hmm. a group of athletes i'll i'll very much individually apply constraints depending mm -hmm. on what somebody mm -hmm. may potentially need at the time mm -hmm. so if you have an athlete who struggles to come offline uh against somebody who's attacking attacking quite directly yeah i'll manipulate them to only being allowed to move laterally yeah, across the center of the ring, so their opponents allowed to circle as much as they want. They have the yeah. full ring cues, but the person who's constrained can only move left and right, mm -hmm. and that typically means that they've got to step offline anytime they want a counterattack. Now I'm reducing an awful lot that they can potentially do. I'm not taking any techniques away from them, but I'm encouraging them to have to step off the line. I yeah. won't tell them that's what they're doing, yeah. but that's what I'll do. If I have athletes who who almost try and Defend, uh, try and run too much and end up not engaging in much of a spare, I'll stick them in the channel. So you're back and forth. You guys have to work within one meter. So you're working or you're heightening that very much aggressive, straight line, offensive attack rather than a counterattack. So you can manipulate in those aspects and you can manipulate things like your, your timing. Okay, you've got 30 seconds left. Um, how do your athletes respond in that? And I think a lot of that comes back to that paper I was talking about earlier um, from Mike Maloney and uh, and colleagues over in Australia as well, actually. Mm -hmm. And they did a, a really nice study where they compared training to the competition environment. And what they saw was that, like, in training, the number of attacks that people engaged in was significantly less than in the competition. They saw that the yeah. distance that they started to engage in an attack from was much further away. So you're, again, perceptually, you're not attuning to the same things in training that you would be in a competition sense. Yeah. Um, they saw that predictable movements increased massively. Anxiety and arousal and mental effort were all significantly decreased. And it's not anxiety in a bad way, but it's that competition anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you're looking at kind of your more elite athletes, those are the things you need to consider. And those are things you can start to apply some constraints to, to see how they 
actually engage in that setting and how well they can cope with those settings. So if you look at um, three kind of key things, and, and I, again, another stolen concept from my former PhD supervisor, Dr. Edward Collin, is you have context, relevance, and consequence are the kind of three key pillars that if you can have those in your training session, you're going to start to get your athletes closer to that. So context is, does it is it representative of the actual competition? And that could be in terms of constraining distances that your athletes can attack this. You have to work on a sm much smaller ring. So you're going to engage in attacks from that shorter distance rather than from that further away distance that they were seeing in the manipulation. You could start to manipulate, okay, we're going to have a two-minute round. You have to attack at least 10 times offensively rather than counterattack in the session. If you get to that, you win the round. You may want to heighten uh, spin kicks. So it's a spin-to-win game where if you score with a spinning kick, then you win at the end of the two minutes if the other person hasn't scored with a spinning kick. No matter what the other scores, you might have just scored a spinning kick. They might have hit you with seven or eight side kicks. But because you got you were in that incentivized range, you were able to win that particular round. And then you have consequence, which is kind of one of the biggest changes I've ever, um, one of the biggest light bulb moments I've ever had in training. And that's, if I apply consequences, and consequences as a term is a bit of a funny one, mm. to my athletes, I can manipulate how their arousal and anxiety levels vary in training. Okay. Now, those words can be quite standoffish for a lot of people, but when I say consequence, it can be something really simple like um, if I have a, an athlete who absolutely despises being the one who chooses music in a gym session or in a, in a warm-up, then I'll apply that as a consequence to them. And it's funny, it's, it's the moment that players go, I don't want to do that. Or you say, okay, well, if you lose, you've got to clean your opponent's gear because we all know that the gear is absolutely horrific in terms of the, yeah. the gear bags and the smell of it. Or yep. if, you're <laughs> yeah. club, if you're in a club where the mats come up and go down at the start to end of every session, half of your uh, group who lose their spare may be the ones that have to take the mats up because nobody enjoys taking the mats up at the end oh, of the session. Oh, that's miserable. I've done that before. Exactly. It's miserable, yeah. <laughs> so, so if you apply consequences like that, you've just created a lot more value to that spare. So somebody's going to be far more likely to engage to try and win the spare than they might have if there was no consequence whatsoever. So your arousal levels are coming up. And as a result, there's a little bit more anxiety because you don't want to lose that spare because you don't want to have to do the consequence. Now, I think it's really important to point out that a consequence isn't a punishment in terms of like a physical task because I think that's yeah. probably one of the, the sides of things that I've, I really kind of dislike when people start playing consequence. Like, oh, you're going to do press-ups, so you're going to yeah. run an extra mile. There because it's it the punishment aspect is not something it's the it's the more fun element of a consequence that works really well there's so a like there's I'm, yeah there's like a long and I, I wrote i wrote like an article just trying to get my thoughts out a few years ago on this there's a long and um very toxic history of using uh consequences or really punishments like push-ups and burpees and things like that to disincentivize people from exploring yeah. and trying yeah. things out in practice. So if you drop, if you're doing your jung bung, um, which is what we we called the bow um, when I was doing taekwondo many many years ago, if you drop that, you know you had to do ten push-ups. 
Yeah. So I wouldn't go as fast. I wouldn't try different ways to spin it. I wouldn't try, you know, I would stick yep. to what I knew and I would go at the pace I was at. And that's what I did for 10 minutes. And that's all I got out of practice. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, that's, that's the really important part of that. If you're adding consequence, it's got to be something that's, that's more of a, a fun consequence in a way, like some, yeah. like it, especially if you're dealing with younger kids, it, it, it can't be punishment because as you, you so rightly pointed out the expiration is just minimized straight away yeah they, they go back into like the safest zone they possibly can they're mm. not going to try to and typically yeah. uh, i would only start looking at applying consequences with older athletes who are at a more elite level um mm. but it, it's just one of those things that gets you closer to the competition style of sparring than what typically may occur in training and again this isn't for every training session but we can't expect athletes to perform in a competition level if they've never been exposed to those sensations outside of it. Yeah. So if I guess, so I'm thinking in my head, as you're saying this, if I were trying to differentiate the difference between the improper or um, toxic use of consequences versus its proper place where it's, where it's actually useful. And I would say, I guess I would say that, that um, in when you want to train the affective with an A, the affective aspect of of a competition, you can add consequences, like you said. To that was exactly the question I was going to ask you about that study. After I had read it, was how do you simulate this? And that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to simulate that that anxiety level um, without actually being in, in in a tournament, that's a way to do it. If mm-hmm. you want to practice the effective parts of training like actually trying exploring trying out functional movement patterns functional solutions to problems then you don't want to be using those consequences because you want people to explore yeah i mean you can you can and that's the thing you can you can have training sessions where the aim is exploration and if you are the person who try to explore the least amount of ways mm-hmm. the consequence could be applied to you. I mean, that, I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things as, as well as it's important that your athletes get it wrong. It's important that they fail. Yeah. And it's important that, yeah. because if, 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 and it's one of the things I found, I always used to find quite funny about martial arts in the traditional sense is it had to look a particular way. And if mm-hmm. it, and if it didn't, it was an error and it was seen as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the kind of you know some of the some of the kids who I trained with who were a little bit unorthodox in their fighting style, mm-hmm. who were actually still really good fighters. Yep. Because they didn't look how they were supposed to look. We're told that no, you need to change this. You need to change this. And you need to yeah. Change this because it needs to look a particular way. Yeah. We're always almost told that what they were doing was wrong, rather than being. Uh, kind of congratulated for their their exploring yeah. and their ability to come up with a novel way to throw a technique. Yeah. And I think that's in martial arts that that traditional view of what the technique should be, yeah, can hamper an awful lot of that creativity and exploration. Yeah, yeah, it's like the I guess the money ball effect where yeah you get people from a weird background that do things a little bit funkier, but if you actually look at their stats. They're good, even though they don't yeah. look the part of what is established 
um, yeah. as the correct formal way to do it. And that's why I talk when I talk to it's so different the, ch- the, the changes in categories between modal learning research and skill acquisition versus the categories, the sort of artifice of categories that traditional martial arts have built up around them. You have to translate between the two to even have a conversation. Yeah. And <laughs> it's so difficult. And, um, and it's like, uh, so what I say, my, the, the sort of, I guess, nomenclature that I use is like formal, ver- formally correct versus functional. Whereas yeah. you have the, you have the way that a technique looks, the kin- it's sort of kinematic aesthetic, I guess you could say. Mm. And we have an estab- we have these established markers for the way it's supposed to look like, um, which is great for sport, Pumse, right? In a situation mm. where you want to judge people based on the way it looks from a, a standard. Yeah. Um, but in a situation that is that is outcome dependent, like sparring, where you have to get points, and you have to you have you have separate metrics like ehogus have a, a a pressure threshold that you have to um you have a part of the limb that you have to use to break that threshold to score so it's based mm-hmm. on scoring and it's based on um how fast can you be while still hitting that that power threshold on the ehogu um mm-hmm. which changes the dynamic of the game the kicks look different uh the strategies look different but the outcomes are a certain way um, so yeah. if you're, so if you want to have training that's oriented towards, um, sparring, then you have to stop thinking about the formally correct technique and thinking about what works. Yeah. But even, but even that, that comes back to that original kind of question you asked me in terms of what is percept, what is perceptual mm-hmm. skill, what are perceptual skills or what is yeah. perceptual motor postural cues are, are one of the key things that feed into that so if you were to look at it from a, a kind of a triangle perspective you have the the player the opponent you have the situation and then you have the task so when you kind of dig deeper into those if you look at the situation the postural cues that you're trying to pick up have a big impact on your ability to either defend or if it, you're uh from if you're in an attacking perspective if somebody can't pick up on the postural cues or the lack of postural cues you're giving you've got a much better chance of scoring. So yeah. it, it, it's one of those things is what is the requirement? And as an athlete or as somebody who's trained to uh, develop athletes, can you get them to a place where they're exploring their own unique way of doing that rather than this is the textbook, this is what we follow, this is how you do it, this is the way you do it, and there's no other option. So that's one of those key things in terms of perceptual training is if I can, one, be exposed in my typical training group to a lot of different perceptual cues, I'm going to start to become a lot better at identifying the ones that are a little bit unique. So Mm -hmm. if I come up against it in a competition setting, I'm problem solving while I'm in competition and I'm able to to adapt to that unique style. Whereas if I'm in a club where everybody kicks the same way and I go into a competition setting and somebody kicks differently, I'm not, I've never been exposed to those varying postural cues and i'm going to find that very difficult to adapt yeah 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 that's awesome this is really this is going to be really really great for for the the coaches that are there that, that listen to my podcast and i know that a friend a personal friend of mine that um is doing really well and having some success with the constraints led approach 
with, uh, with Olympic Taekwondo athletes, um, understanding how not just being able to explore, um, move functional movement solutions. That is like the, that's like one layer of, of, of and a really important layer of represent representativeness, but you also have that, that anxiety level and, and the other affective aspects of that. If that's not present, then you're not the level of representativeness of your training is lacking. And I, I just yeah. had another connection that I made there in the different combat sport there. Um, there was a re recently a documentary out of um, flow, flow wrestling, or flow rolling or whatever, um, where there's a team um, it's called pedago submission fighting. And it's a whole quirky thing. It has its own weird um, uh, kind of vibe to it. Cause it's just a bunch of dudes, young guys that don't work. Um, they're not dumb. Like they're smart people, but they don't work. They just train full time. They used to live inside of the gym. The gym is like an old rundown laundromat called Daisy Fresh. And they didn't have enough money to, to change it to pedago submission fighting. So now they're the Daisy Fresh crew, right? That's what they are. <laughs> they have shirts with the old logo for the laundromat. And it's, um, uh, it's really funny. But these guys are killing the competition scene, especially the professional submission fighting scene. Mm -hmm. And um, the guy that runs it is pretty intelligent. He does a lot of different like positional sparring type of, of interesting methods, but one of the things that they do, and this is not sustainable, right? You can't actually really train this way, but one of the things that they do is they train at a volume at an intensity that is like 90 to 100% all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, most other jujitsu athletes, I don't know if you're familiar with that, that area, but most jujitsu athletes, if you go in and you roll, it's just a fun time, right? And yeah. you don't do anything serious until competition time. So you never get that, that anxiety level, that affective di dimension of, uh, of representativeness for the actual performance environment. And I think that's one of the reasons these guys, these guys are just kind of doing the same techniques everyone else is doing, but they're killing it in competition because they have, they have they've been training in an environment that's more representative of the intensity and the um, anxiety of, of actual competition. Um, Cause you'll even hear, you'll listen to him talk in the documentary. And he's like, yeah, dude, I love training, but I hate training. Like, because you always have to be super sharp. These guys will injure you if, and they're friends, but they will injure you if you're, if you're slacking, if you're not a hundred percent, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get, um, you know, submitted and these guys are killing competition, but they're also like their injury levels accelerated. Right. Yeah. They've got slip discs and fingers that are bent the wrong way. And like, they're, 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 they're killing in competition, but they're very quickly beginning to, to wear down. Yeah. And I, I, that, that's really interesting. Uh, I, one for the, the list of things to watch, which at times, grows ever longer but it, <laughs> yeah. it, it just resonated with me something that again i'm mm -hmm. stick with my pattern of stealing things from other people and, and uh, yeah and i'm a stealer i'm a stealer yeah <laughs> and it's uh Marco sullivan who does work with uh youth development but he he, he speaks about the the concept of as many as possible as long as possible for as good as possible 
but it's it's very much something you could apply to these guys. They, they, there may be a view of them killing it in competition, but he's he's given the example before of if I put six eggs in a basket or in a bag and I chuck that bag against the wall and I take one egg out that survived and say, look, my process worked. Well, nobody pays any attention to the five broken eggs on the floor. You could take the same concept and look at it from one or two of these guys may be winning a competition, but there may be another four or five, six at home with a slip disc or yeah. with a with so many injuries that they may, may never be able to compete again. And the longevity yeah. of that, it it just doesn't seem viable, especially in terms of the longevity of the same people doing it mm-hmm. long term. They may just have people who see that, oh, that worked for that person, they won. I'm going to mm-hmm. try it that way. And you may just have a con- consistent turnover. But from an ethical perspective, where do you stand on having people who come into your sport or into your, yeah. your dojo or your, your Daisy Fresh laundromat or whatever it yeah, may be? Yep. <laughs> versus how many do you lose? And that's that's the other side of it. You need to be, from a, an ethical perspective in sport, you need to be about not just what the people are when they're they're people first, they're athletes later. Yeah. So you have to be cognizant of the person and that's just that's that's the the yeah. that's the other side of that coin. But yeah. 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 They call it the Daisy Fresh method. They actually do seminars of it now where it's just that basically they do some of the real cool, interesting methods, but it's mostly based around getting more rounds of high intensity rolling and the people and the people that have done it themselves you know they've they've said i feel like i'm way better i'm having breakthroughs but me looking at that i'm like that's great and you should do that but it should be like more like periodized (laughs) it should be more like maybe once a month maybe once every other month you know like not every practice because you will get injured and you're gonna get broken fingers and you're gonna have people who who are programmers that aren't gonna want to train anymore because it's too painful to do their job and uh, yeah. because, because of the, the grip stripping is at level 100%. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that so many, di- so many things you have to think about as a coach of different dimensions of how to actually represent the, the environment and train people, not just to recognize and, and produce the correct response, but also like what's going on with managing anxiety and understanding, mm-hmm. you know, things that, that can lead to, um, to that but you know you you sent me a lot of awesome studies before we were discussing so we've kind of discussed i think two of the of the taekwondo studies that you sent me there's also a boxing study where that i found really interesting where it talks about how the environment can in part dictate the available actions a boxer can 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 use at any given moment within um, a match so it shows that to me from from my understanding um it shows that if you're, if it, you know, if you're at a point where you know boxing well enough, you tend to naturally self-organize in, in in sort of specific ways in order to exploit affordances that are that present themselves throughout a boxing match. So, for example, um, you know, if you're at a certain distance there's a certain set of punches that are more likely to be used by a boxer who has a level of practice. Um, Then if at a different distance where, whether you're closer or farther away, fewer or more punching options are, even if it's technically possible to throw a punch from that range, the likelihood that it will emerge or that a a, a athlete will, will choose to, to use that technique is much lower or higher 
Um, can, can you talk to us about this sort of spontaneous emergence of functional tactics and strategies and how we can approach practice to help facilitate this? Yeah, so it, the, that, that's a, that is a, a really interesting paper. I think it's um, Christofsky. I probably butchered that name. I don't um, remember. I just remember the content. Yeah. I don't remember the names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keith Davids is on it as well, and that's always a good name now in there. Yep. Um, yep. But they, they, they look at it, it's kind of a concept of metastability. So mm-hmm. we have like metastable regions, and, and you, you described it really well. If I'm talking about metastable regions, I'm like, what does a particular distance afford me? So if you want to take that to sparring and taekwondo, or you want to take the mixed martial arts, in a in the mixed martial arts perspective, I am going to be, and it's again, it's it's very much dependent on an individual's capabilities to perform a particular action. So if I um, if I'm a very explosive at takedowns, I may be able to engage in a takedown from a further distance than somebody else. But that's my particular metastable region. But if you want to look at that for how you exploit that, um, and it comes back to constraints, if I can constrain the distance between opponents, I can start to perturb the system in terms of, okay, I'm going to go back to voluming up on a particular uh, set of techniques where I'm going to incentivize those techniques, but from a particular distance that maybe they're not used to throwing them from. So how does an athlete explore to do something in a region that they typically don't engage in that particular technique from. Yeah. I think a good example of it is probably a question mark kick, um, yeah. where you may be at a distance that's much more, um, that affords a front kick much more than a turning kick. But if mm-hmm. you can build into that, okay, I'm going to show you a front kick, but I'm going to end up whipping that around into a question mark kick, mm-hmm. you know, have a turning kick, you can encourage exploration in those kind of metastable regions so if i put you in a in a region that is uncomfortable for you how do you adapt to that and the reason i i sent you that paper and the reason i think it's really interesting is i've been in the situation before as a fighter where i can't figure out the range of somebody else and i'm getting kicked in the head and i'm getting blitzed yeah. and, and i'm like i can't figure out this distance yeah so if again and that's in a competition setting so i want to take that into the training setting to say I'm going to put you in very unstable um, kind of regions or distances. So I'm going to start to work on you gauging distance and kind of getting much better at pattern recognition from that perceptual training perspective mm-hmm. in these particular regions. And I'm going to see how you adapt to those. Okay. And again, this is one of those sessions where you feel probably terrible going home because you're like, I could not score a point and I got beaten around the place. But it's about then just encouraging somebody to start to adapt. And that's that's very much not a one training session thing. That has to be part of the culture of your your club in terms of it's okay to make errors here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I can also start to get you to understand, oh, well, actually, I've never thrown this kick from this region, from this kind of distance. But actually, you know what? It actually works. So this is something I can start to do now. Mm-hmm. And then I can get people to understand what they can throw from those particular ranges and those particular distances. Um, and it works quite well. Um, and it, it's, it's a, it, I've, I've used this before in a training session and sometimes the students get super confused. They have no idea why they're doing what we're doing. And I very much try to talk as little as possible. My, I, I will try and say as little as possible when I'm going through these things. So I'm like, I want you guys to try and figure this out. 
And if they need help, then I'll step in and just probe with some questions. Like, okay, well, tell me what could you have done in this situation? You threw this technique from here um, four times in that last bar, but why did you not connect? Why do you think you didn't connect? And then they'll start to come along with you and they say, okay, well, maybe I need to try this. Okay, well, let's go back in. Let's see how that works. And you're then just kind of guiding that exploration and discovery rather than saying, from this distance, this is what you throw. From this distance, mm. this is what you throw. Yeah, so when they, yeah. yeah. So when you go back in, and this is all in in the thought process of when I go back into competition, I want adaptable performers, people who can figure out what is happening in front of them, especially if they've never seen it before. So I would, I just want problem solvers. I want to create problem solvers. So, so mm-hmm. that's why I put them in those situations where they have to problem solve. Yeah. What would you think of, this is a problem that I'm thinking about right now because I've been thinking of not just as a practitioner, but of if I wanted to be a politician of sorts and I wanted to get into like a state level um, development of sport Taekwondo and I wanted to help guide um, and incentivize certain ways of of training and developing within this, my state. Um, It's difficult everyone does everything differently and in one way that's awesome in another way everyone's just doing traditional training methods right so um like it i was thinking of like you know a way that uh, a way of practicing where you know you, you said like metastable ranges like are there a finite are there a finite grouping of metastable ranges, number one, within Taekwondo that I can define within some sort of taxonomy? And then can I use certain mm-hmm. metrics within those ranges to um, measure a athlete's progress across those ranges to understand where they need work? And what can be done to improve improve in their game there? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to look at that, you definitely have to get into to the point of really analyzing your athletes that you'd mm-hmm. be working with. You'd want you, because, yeah. as I said, the individual difference in athletes has a big impact on this. So if I have a, I've got two six foot tall athletes, but one has got a much longer reach with their li- lower limbs than the yeah. other, or one has a much larger reach right. with their upper limbs. Right. That distance is then different for both of those individuals. So it takes an awful lot of work. It's not a, it's not like a blanket region by region, right. but you'll have, right. you'll have, um, you'll have read like kind of intra individual regions that mm-hmm. you could potentially map. Yeah. So if you're working with an individual who has a, a great reach with their job and you know for them that this is how far they can reach and mm-hmm. this is, how well they close distance with that job or how well they keep yeah. somebody at range with that job. You can then set that up as, okay, well, this is it. Or you have somebody who's in a similar setting who has similar um, arm length, but struggles to keep somebody at range with the job. You can say, well, let's start to figure out the distance and you can know, but I, I, w- I probably wouldn't encourage telling them that it's this distance because you're just going to have them in their head about how far away they need to stand from someone. Right. And you can make the ring size to maybe mm-hmm. encourage that. Yeah. Um, and then you can, you can analyze it and then you can start feeding back in again. But the feedback in for me then is in those questioning states of 
from a practical side of how that works, but you can have plenty of data at time to identify, well, actually they have improved on their jab within this distance based on their arm length. Yeah. So you can start to see if they throw a particular volume or percentage of jabs once they're in that particular range versus what they used to throw. And yeah. if they're starting to get a lot more comfortable with throwing that jab. Yeah. I had an idea and I'm just bouncing this off you. So this is like not, this is not something I've written a paper on or anything like that. I'm just trying to figure out. I'm always worried about when you, when you offer information constraints, um, there's a, there's a few things. And, and I've noticed this in my own practice because I forget the rules of, of an engagement for like positional sparring or technical sparring. And I've always, I'm thinking of how can I bypass the, the like, cognitive problem of trying to remember certain rules during training so that I actually, uh, my, my movement genuinely organizes along those lines or, or my students. And, um, you know, for, if you want to force, if you want to get people with, to practice closer to each other, it's easy to attach a cord between their belts or something. Right. And then they don't have to think too much about whether or not they're, they're getting too far away because they have like an end, they have sort of a kinesthetic index on that and they don't have to yeah. think about it too much. Right. And so mm -hmm. they don't get to where they're, 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 I have to keep cueing them to stay closer. Right. Yeah. Um, you could also, like you said, make the ring size smaller, yeah. but if you wanted them to stay in a range that's farther apart, my, I was thinking maybe something that you could, you could do is you could have concentric rings and then they have different colors. And then if you want them to stay within a range, that's a little bit farther, you could say you can move between, you know, the white ring and the blue ring, but do not go in farther than the yellow ring. Right. And so mm -hmm. you have to stay at a little bit of a longer range. Yeah. You have you to engage your attack you before you enter a particular zone. Right, but you can still move between some outer rings. Yeah, so, so you just can't engage yep. in an attack in that zone. So you can yeah. move in and out of it all you want, yeah. but you can't engage in your attack from within it. That yeah. Makes, yeah, that makes yeah. Sense to me. Yeah. yeah, it would be weird. It would be super hard. There's all kind of different cool things you can do with the ring, but like actually building things that have all this stuff would be expensive yeah. and difficult and probably yeah. super busy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think keeping it simple is one of the better ways to do it. Like it, yeah. in, in with the mat, mats that flip and you have two, two different colors on the same mat, those work really well. So we, we had okay. those yeah. red on one side, blue on the other. So we could just get creative with the mat and the ring layout. Yeah. So yeah. if you have in your head that you know this is what you're going to do, you can create a big ring and a little ring. You can just get people manipulating between those and see how they adapt within okay. both of those rings without really saying anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Another idea I had was to actually build. It's shaped like a Olympic Taekwondo ring, which is more like a, more like an octagon now. And, but, but to keep people from um, like constantly going out of bounds, like if you make the ring smaller so that they work more in a, in a range that's representative of how people fight in, because there's a paper and it might have been the self same paper, but I think it was a different paper um, where they, what they actually found was in sparring, they, they tend to stick, kind of hang around at a, at a farther range and kind of, it's a little bit, there's less intensity. The, um, the motivation and the drive to get a points points is a little bit lower, but as opposed to being in a tournament, they actually 
because they're more interested in points, they, there's that there's that anxiety level where they really have a higher drive to get those points because mm. they want to win. They instinctively spar or fight at a closer range. And I was, you know, me just trying to figure out how do I simulate something like that. And this is before I really had under was understanding the, the anxiety aspect of it. But I was like, how can I simulate that with the environment? And I was thinking um, without them always going out of bounds and having to constantly remind them, like, what if I made a, what if I made something more like a boxing ring that was shaped like that, where there's actually a physical barrier that you, that you will hit and you don't want to hit it. So you will, your body will self-organize not to hit it. Right. Mm-hmm. So could I build something like that to use that I can adjust the size of um, to bypass constantly having to try and, you know, remind them to stay in this range. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think a really simple way to do that was potentially have the other students stand at the distance. Yep. Cause now you have a bunch of students standing watching one spare. So the mm-hmm. anxiety level is already increased from that perspective. Yeah. But you don't want to go falling into other students either. You don't want so to, you don't want to be the one who's pushed it. So if you create almost that little bit more of a competition ring, but mm-hmm. Jesus, there's a lot of people really close watching me now. You're going to see those consequences that uh, are those, those um, representative kind of, intensities increase because somebody's going to be like i have 18 people standing very close to me who are all watching this very yeah. closely you know you, you know what's funny about that because sometimes i'm just too much in my head one of my buddy who actually just coaches a lot more than i do he that's his, that was his solution that's what he did yeah. i was like yeah. this is why we this is you know this is why we need more than just one person think about this yeah. <laughs> that's what Absolutely. he did that was his solution was to, was to, get, solution, them, yeah. to get them uh, moved in yeah because you don't want to hit your buddies in uh and then it's also a physical barrier there and, and then they're, they're watching too so there's that lx ele- that elevated anxiety level yeah yeah that's great. And he, he listens, I know he listens to the podcast, so he's gonna, uh, he's gonna hear that. He'll like that. But, um, okay. So switching gears to this karate study on, um, situational information for decision-making, this is getting into an area that I don't super understand that well yet. So it's like, um, this one seems to be, uh, a big deal for like motor control and gaze behavior and, and, the paper, you know, from my understanding of the paper is that they found that experts didn't look in as many different places as novices did when they're like scanning to find, you know, the information they need. Um, yet they were able to more quickly pick up and, and launch counters to certain attack, uh, patterns of attack. Um, can you explain what's going on here for? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the situational probability aspect of it. Uh, kind of deal ties into what kinematic information you're picking up from mm-hmm. your opponent or if you're down in a fight and you've got 30 seconds left it's going to significantly impact your approach because you know if you lose you're knocked out uh, from a kinematic perspective uh, it's almost like a game of poker where you, people have tells and those tells feed information into you in terms of identifying what's coming next uh, so I think what, what was really interesting about that study is they had designed it so that every four techniques, the same technique was repeated and they got the novice or the uh, novice and the elites to try and identify what attack was coming towards them. And the elite started to pick up on that um, probability much quicker. So they were able to identify the things that the other person was doing mm-hmm. that was able to give them enough information to say, okay, well, I know this is a turning kick. And I think 
to give you a really easy example of this, if you look at a any novice or a beginner or somebody who's an intermediate who's about to throw a spin kick, their back leg is going to start creeping out behind them a lot earlier than somebody who's at an expert level who's going to throw it from their comfortable stance. Yeah. So the situational probability from that perspective is you are giving me kinematic information from your body that I'm able to say, okay, well, I know you're going to throw a spin kick because I can see you're priming your body to throw that uh-huh. because somebody may not be very comfortable to throw it from that neutral stance. Yeah. And that gets a lot more difficult at an elite level. So you start to look at things like the timing, the score, um, and a couple of other factors that will impact on whether somebody has to really press in that situation or whether they can disengage and just yeah. fight in a little bit of a smarter aspect. So if I am two points up with 10 seconds to go, I have no intention of engaging in the next 10 seconds. If I can avoid, I'm just going to move around. So from a situational perspective, depending on what size you're on, you know that there's something in particular coming. You know you're either going to get pressed and attacked or you know that the other person isn't really going to engage. So you're going to have to be the one that engages. So if you want to start to set that up from a training perspective, you can start to apply the context of those elements or those situational elements into your training. From a kinematics perspective, I may come over to one of the two people sparring and say, okay, every four techniques, I don't care what you do with the first three, but every fourth one, I want you to throw a turn kick or every fourth one, I want you to throw a spin kick. And you start to see if the person on the other side is able to identify that. And then afterwards you say, okay, what was his, um, what kick did he use most frequently out of all of those? And if they're able to identify that, you say, okay, they might not be able to tell you what they were seeing, but if they're starting to see them and recognize them earlier, that situation probably in terms of the kinematics is starting to build in that person. So they're starting to perceive those cues a lot more. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of a timing perspective or a score perspective, it's kind of those typical things of you're to them with, 10 seconds ago, what do you do in the situation? So if you train that in a training perspective and a competition perspective, it gives that person a sense of, I've been in this situation before. I can now start to yeah. develop upon that. Yeah. So it's about bringing, and it, it's again about trying to close the distance between what happens in training and what happens in the competition yeah. and exposing your elites to that. And if you're not exposing them to that, it's that expectation of they don't understand what to do in those situations because they've never been in those before. Awesome. So this, there's something that I've wondered. Um, I have a couple of questions on this. Uh, so one of them is Rob, Rob Gray, Dr. Rob Gray was talking about, um, he was talking about the differences between prediction and prospective control. Yes. And I must admit that I don't really understand the differences even after listening to the podcast like three times. Um, the second one is, uh, you know, how does that, how do we understand that within like an ecological approach, I guess? Like, for example, I do not understand chess from an ecological perspective. I don't, <laughs> so um, like I can, I'm having trouble. I, I'm not having trouble understanding 98% of how sports works from an ecological perspective, um, you know, with affordances and recognizing how things kind of influence the way that you control your behavior. Um, but I'm, I am having trouble with chess because chess is like a much more, um, it's, I don't know, it's just different. So like, how does, how is it different? How is this, how would this using situational, 
like you said, you, you have a sense of being in the situation before. How does this differ from like a schema theory of motor learning where yeah. you're building a more, where you're building a more, um, I guess you could say sophisticated schematic understanding, a representation of the game as you gain experience? Yeah, so it could be the terminology that just creates that that little bit of weight. So mm -hmm. when, you, when you say perspective versus predictive control, I'm going to give you the uh, question mark kick example again. Really simple. Mm -hmm. If I use predictive control, I'm going to try and block from a front kick because I've identified that in a predictive manner, you're mm -hmm. throwing a front kick. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I use <clears throat> excuse me, perspective control, I'm relying on online information. And that online information is the whip of your hip. So okay. you started as a front kick, but you have to then with the hip turn to, to turn that into a question mark kick. If I've decided from a predictive perspective that I know what you're throwing after the first couple of milliseconds of your movement, I'm going to get kicked in the head. Whereas from a perspective, online perspective, or, uh, from a perspective control uh, side of things, I'm relying on not just the advanced cues, which may have made me think, yes, this might be a front kick, mm -hmm. but also information that I'm getting online. So I'm not making a full-out prediction. I'm allowing the information to unfold and mm -hmm. I'm interacting with the environment. So I'm able to identify, actually, no, this is no longer a front kick. And now I get to move. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference between the kind of predictive versus perspective. Um, in terms of chess, uh, yeah, it's a good question. How <laughs> does... <laughs> I, so what's, what's the exact question in relation, in relation to chess from that? I don't know what the exact question is. Okay, so okay. my under, I'm trying to figure out what, because when I talk to, I have a friend who's good at chess. He's really into chess, and I'm trying to inject some, this is an exercise for me just as much as trying to give him an edge, because most people who train chess, I think they train from like a schematic or very information processing type of a view of how to get better at chess and maybe chess is just a different domain of skill and it, it needs to be chained in a totally different way. But, um, he pushes back on a lot of stuff from a more, what seems to me like an information processing type of, of standpoint. And I don't understand, totally understand how you in a, in a chess match, you would look at the chess pieces on the board and, um, understand how to move from like an eco, like an emergence type of point of view versus a schematic type of view okay. where you're, you, you have a representation of the game, like yeah. a very sophisticated representation. Yeah. So I think, um, have you, have you ever seen the, the Queen's Gambit? Uh, yes, I have. It was great. Okay. <laughs> so, so some of my knowledge is going to come from the Queen's Gambit. Okay. okay. So it, my and again, I'm not huge on chess, but my understanding of chess is that there are particular strategies that people open with and they mm -hmm. uh, engage in throughout the game. Yeah. If you're going from that perspective or from that predictive um, control element of things, you're identifying that this is this is a strategy I'm going to use to win the game. But I, I think it's very rare that somebody begins with a strategy and it works out completely as they had identified in their head right. from a human right. perspective. The strategy always has to evolve and change or emerge mm -hmm. based on the movements of the other player in that game. Okay. 
So from that perspective, yes, they think multiple steps ahead, but so is the other person from mm. that elite level chess. So they're able to identify what's occurring in the game. And if they were to stick strictly to their initial schema perspective, likely is you probably lose more frequently than you'd win because you're not adapting to what's happening from the other person. Yeah. Chess is very much an interaction yeah. game. Yeah. So if you're relying on this is the strategy I'm using, and unless you're playing a complete novice like me who has no idea what the strategies are, you're probably going to come up against the need to have to adapt to your opponent. Okay. And so the pieces on the board where they're all positioned kind of, if you're at the, I'm not at this level, right? I'm a, I'm a mega hobbyist and that I play, I'm interested in it intellectually and I maybe play it like once a month. Um, but if you're at the, the situation where you can look at a, you're at, you're at the stage where you can look at a board, you can look at the pieces you have almost like a burial, like a barrier sense. Like when you're walking, when you're walking in a crowd, you understand where everyone is and you kind of just organize. Like my, 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 my hypothesis for, for under, the trying to understand this is that when you look at the board, you look, you, you understand the board better than you have your level of practice where you understand, understand the board. So you kind of actually know where all the pieces could move. Um, and you, you, you understand that more intuitively and quicker than somebody who is still understanding where all the pieces can move and looking at the pieces individually and mm. calculating manually in their head, you know, you know, the night goes two steps over and, and one, one squared out, you know what I mean? Like you, I still do that. I still have to calculate the movement, follow it with my eyes. Whereas somebody who's, more practice on the board can look at it and understand where the barriers are without the pieces being there. And maybe yeah. that's a, that goes into um, like, maybe that goes into how they, they um, understand what's the, the, the potential pathways that somebody can go down yeah. from every well, then, position in chess. Yeah. Well, let me throw another example at you that might help in that aspect. Mm -hmm. If, I, who have very limited cooking experience, get the exact same ingredients as a Michelin star chef. Uh -huh. And we're creating the exact same meal. He's probably going to do it a lot better than I did. We, we still have the same ingredients, but that person's in-depth knowledge of that particular thing or their engagement with food and how they experiment with it goes from this is a simple dish to this is now a more complex dish to somebody like Heston Blumendale who creates dishes that nobody's ever thought of before. Mm. So if you look at it from that aspect, you're still working with the same ingredients, mm. but people do very different things with those based on yeah. their engagement with yeah. those and what those particular ingredients afford the chef. Yeah. So it, I think it's just in terms of how you're able to view it has a big impact on how much you engage in it from that perspective. So, also. so it's not just having, it's not just having, it's not just having, the ingredients and a piece of paper with the with the recipe. It's the actual procedural experience of following the recipe, of the timing of how long it took to brown the meat, the color of the meat, the sound, the like everything that the information, uh, the information sources that you have while making it, um, kind of feeds into your competence of of making it. Like you can't just follow the recipe. There's more going on as you yeah. follow the recipe that informs your skill in making the, the dish, whatever it is that you're making. 
<laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I just I'm challenging myself to think of more dimensions because that's that was the biggest thing for me when I started when I when I started getting into motor learning. I was like, yeah, this is the secret, dude. I'm gonna read all these. I'm gonna get better technique and all that stuff. And then I realized, oh, it's not about better technique. It's about like perceptual training. It's about the meant the psychological aspect of it, the sports psychology. You know, there's all these other elements that are even more interesting and more, in some ways, more important to to good training than a more efficient round kick, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's that's the way I'm trying to challenge other other people to go with that same, not the same, but like a similar arc of of thinking that that I've gone through. That it's actually a lot more than then the selection of techniques and how to perform them better. It's also the timing, the reading, the, the distancing, the, the, the psychology level, the level of, of where you're tuning your attention and stuff like that. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's a good point. And if there's ever a video that highlights that, that really well, Andre Agassi, the, uh, the tennis player, there's a video of him talking about his ability to read uh, and mm-hmm. serve and he relied on the cue of the person's tongue and the direction their tongue pointed. So if their <laughs> tongue pointed, if their tongue pointed straight, it was a serve straight down the line. If they went left, yeah. and this was just as they were bouncing the ball. Yeah. And he then went on an enigma style aspect of knowing when to use his knowledge of the tell and then when not to. So it's not just being able to identify it and then say you're going to use it, because that person may now completely change tack because they know you figured it out. Yeah. So he he worked he, and that video, I can send you that video afterwards, but it's a beautiful example of that attunement can be very different to what we typically view it to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, to, to wrap this up, cause we, we covered a lot, like this is a lot of yeah. really access is information dense. It's really excellent information. I think everything we've dis- we've discussed is really going to be impactful to, to my listeners overall. How would you, how would you generally advise a, a combat sports coach to, if you had some principles, some, some, some really key principles to give them, how would you coach them to design their practices? Yeah, context, relevance, and consequence. Take those three, and I think you're going to have much better practice transfer. Awesome. That's like a, yeah, that's like a, a neat little bow right simple. there. Context, super relevance, and, and consequence. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. I love those. I think those, those really simple frameworks are so helpful and so useful for people that aren't interested are not interested, but like aren't used to thinking about this on like a really complex academic level of how to approach practically making their, their practices better. So that's, that's awesome. But thank you so, so much for coming on. This was, this was an incredible conversation. I'm really pumped. It'll probably be, I'm on, I'm on a monthly cadence now. So it'll probably be a couple of months before it gets published, but I can't wait to, to put it out. Um, where, where can people find you if they want to, to follow your stuff or get in contact with you? Yeah. Um, people can find me on Twitter, I suppose. I am just at Alan Dunton, I think is pretty simple. Um, or they can email me. I can give you my email if you want to put it in like the show notes or something. I don't know. Yeah, I will. I will for sure. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you my email and people can shoot me an email or they can send me a direct message on Twitter or any of the above. I'm not on any social media other than Twitter. So other than that. <laughs> yeah, that's where I found you was, was Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I found you, I found you on the talent equation. And I, d- I didn't recall you saying any- there was an email. So I was like, I'm going to try and find this guy on Twitter somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I found you. Yeah. Twitter <laughs> and you were responsive. 
Twitter's <laughs> easy. Yeah, I'm happy to engage. Yeah, absolutely. If anybody has any questions based on on this, then absolutely give me a shout on Twitter or uh, in an email, and we can just break things down from there. Awesome. Well, I hope we can do this again sometime. Um, I appreciate you you coming on, and I will let you get back to your Monday. Thanks so much for listening to the Combat Learning Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps us out. Finally, this episode, including the intro music, is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode.